Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. I am John Erico here again with Ryan Goldfarb, the one and only. I am the one and only Ryan Goldfarb, Confirm. and I am here with the one and only John Erico. Thank you so much. Today, we are going to be talking about the broad topic of doing things yourself versus getting others to do them for you. Is that both a philosophical topic, I suppose, in one level, and also a practical topic? Obviously, in the real estate context, here we're talking about the idea of if you have a problem or if you have a, a thing that needs to be done in your real estate business, should you do it yourself or should you call someone else to help you do it? And I think that you and I, Ryan, actually have very different, maybe not opinions on it now, but I think approaches to it in the past. I would say that's fair. If you haven't been listening to the previous podcasts, you might know, uh, you, you may not know that Ryan and I we both work together now running our own construction business, our own acquisition business, and are raising a small private equity fund. But before we worked together, uh, Ryan focused mostly on flips in the North Jersey area, and I focused mostly on buy and hold investments. And the story that I always tell people when I started out was that I moved into a two-family home in New Jersey that was had been abandoned for several years, was in very poor condition. And the way that I learned how to do what uh, I do in real estate is that I did almost everything myself, which is true. So I re-renovated the kitchens of this house ourselves. We painted, we did flooring, we did all sorts of stuff, and then continued that to to different properties. So my almost my like constitutive story, if you will, about how I got started in real estate was doing things on my own, like construction, manual work, that type of stuff. And I, I think that your story is a little bit different, perhaps. It is. I, did you start doing everything from the beginning or did you kind of like take the simpler simpler stuff at the beginning and then we, yeah, we, like progressively bit off more and more? Yeah. So we, we didn't do everything. So we had to reduce some electrical work. And so we hired an electrician to do that. Wise we, choice. A very wise choice. We hired someone to, to hang the cabinets uh, of our kitchen, but we did some drywall stuff. We painted, we did some flooring. We hired someone to do the roof, but I think we did the, we fixed the the drywall on the ceiling. So like the roof had been leaking. So that we someone replaced the roof, but we redid the drywall of the roof itself, of the ceiling below the roof that was leaking. So, but incrementally we've, we've, we then have done more and more and more. We essentially, my wife and I, we, we more or less got renovated an entire house with the exception of doing the plumbing and electrical work. So we moved some walls, did flooring, hung all the cabinets, did a bathroom, that sort of stuff. On my first one, I had a much different approach. The way it originally started was that I had hired a general contractor who was going to be handling everything on the project. But I think I had brought in a, I had brought in the electrician by way of a referral from a friend and everyone else had come through the general contractor, but this general contractor in the first six or nine months had gotten virtually nowhere with this project. So after that experience, I decided to grab the bull by the horns a little bit. And while I wasn't doing any actual construction work myself, I was much more hands-on in terms of facilitating things with the second guy I brought on as a general contractor. So he had he was coordinating a lot of like the day-to-day day-to-day logistics and he had the manpower actually coincidentally which included one guy who we're still using today as a subcontractor of our own because he's he's gone off on his own uh in the last year last two or three years so at that point in the project when i had the second contractor i was 
coordinating most of the materials purchases. I was definitely doing all of the finish work selection. And I would, I would say I had a hand in everything that was going on just about every day. I think it, mostly because I didn't want to make the same mistake again of just giving someone else the reins and letting them, letting all these things slip through the cracks. So I wanted to make sure there was progress. And so I was much more hands-on and, and probably a little overbearing for this guy, but it worked because he, I think, was willing to, to share the burden there. But that turned that turned out to be a great learning experience, and I think that that's that's one of the th- that's one common thread for both of us is I think that at this point, regardless of where our philosophy lies on this topic today, we've both done enough hands on and we've had enough of a level of involvement in various projects over the years that we I think have learned enough from it to know what we want to do and what we want to hire out. For that project that you're referring to, did you do any like physical labor? Like, did you pick up materials? Did you like do yeah, any? I would make Home Depot, like I would make Home Depot runs when we would need, when we would need things, especially if it was last minute and I was physically around. Mm-hmm. The only physical work that I actually did, I believe, was stripping the fireplaces. Um, oh, I remember that. Yeah, they were these old marble, uh, they had these old marble mantles. They were these old marble fireplaces that were probably had like five or six layers of paint baked onto them. So I stripped, I think there were four of them, three, four of them in the house. So I'd stripped each one of them and it was, it was quite a process, especially for something that I had never done before, but it was extremely rewarding. I mean, that was, I think that was the biggest takeaway I had from it. And it was like an isolated enough project that it didn't affect it didn't affect the rest of the work that was going on in the house. So I felt like I could do it and kind of like figure it out as I was out as I was going. It wasn't like I was trying to hang sheetrock with no experience and that that was holding up paint and trim and everything else that comes after that. Yeah, I've been there. Uh, (laughs) No, it's funny because I, I don't think that I've, I think I've only ever hired a general contractor to do work once I think on one project and I think on every other project I've either done the work or hired just guys to do the work like subcontractors or laborers or we've been the general contractor on the project and it's weird because I I think uh I think when I say what I just said that might come off as sort of like boastful or like bragging but I actually don't I don't intend it to be that way because I don't I'm not advocating doing what I did I'm just sort of saying it is what it is like that's kind of how it was yeah my perspective on it now is that I'm I'm grateful for the experience that we've had like particularly over the last year year and a half where we've been very much hands on and all of this stuff but I really do not want to do that again I don't like over the next 12 months the less the less hands on involvement I and collectively we have in each of these projects I think the better I so think- maybe we can drill down into the how we came to that conclusion or sure. like how that evolved because I think we're both in yeah. agreement now on that but and, and just, just to be clear we're we're talking about this right now from the construction context and that's that's certainly one relevant context for real estate so but there's the also management context yeah. right yeah, but you we can also be talking about the idea of doing things yourself versus outsourcing it in the context of property management in the context of the sales side or the acquisition side whether you are represented by an agent or not I even know agents who have their license themselves, but who 
specifically broker things out or refer things out yeah. because they don't, they, they like to have the separation when they're the ones that Same in with the attorneys project. for sure. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, on the legal side, this applies even as like granular as like, as an interior designer, you may, uh, like you may choose to do, to make like all of the finish selections, on, finish selections on your own. But even that kind of stuff is, you have the opportunity to, to outsource that to an interior designer and architect. I think like really big picture. I have, I have two thoughts on this topic about should I do it myself or should I get somebody else to do it? The reason why I've done a lot of things myself has been, I think, from that mentality of saying, I just don't have a lot of money or I don't want to spend a lot of money. And I think that I should, if doing it myself saves me money, at least in the short term, then I'll just do it myself because why not? Like I can, I can do it myself and I can figure it out. And I think a little bit from the perspective of saying, it'll be a learning experience. I can figure out what it is by doing it myself, whatever. That's like one mindset. And I think that's been the mindset that I've often taken why I just do stuff myself. Also, sometimes at this point, it's like, well, I can just do it better, but we can get into, into why that, that may not be relevant. But so that, that's, that's, you know, one mindset. My other mindset is to say, well, look, my time is valuable and I only have so many minutes in a day and I can't do everything and be everything everywhere. And I need to use other people to grow. And there are other people that can do things for me faster and maybe even ultimately more cheaply than if I did it myself, certainly more cheaply if I'm considering ascribing a value to my own time. So those, those two things in my mind are sort of constantly battling when I'm deciding whether or not I should do something myself. I, I still have this you know, issue I, I do in addition to the construction stuff, which as Ryan mentioned, we don't do ourselves like we're not out there, you know, swinging a hammer or doing whatever. I do, pro you know, we do property management stuff as well. And I've been doing some more stuff myself recently. In fact, I, I just a couple of days ago, um, replaced like a shower cartridge myself. And I had a moment, I was like, should I call someone to do this or should I just do it? And I was like, well, like it'll take me 30 minutes and I live next door and I have the thing and I have the pipe, you know, and I, I, um, I ended up doing it, but I, I had a mental thing where I was like, well, I'm going to save a little bit of money and stress because I'm just here anyways, I can do it. But at the same time, it's going to take time and I have to think about, you know, it, it's, it's not, it's not totally obvious to me, even on a micro level, how to do it. And so on a macro level, how to do it, that's even more complicated. So I wonder maybe Ryan, you can talk about how we, you, I think you have a maybe different perspective on those two competing ideologies. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, I guess on, on the first mindset, I think there's the, there's kind of this like disillusion or this misinformation or like widespread belief that if you do it yourself, you're going to save money. And I think that's a really short-sighted way to look at it. I think we've seen, uh, like we have a number of case studies that would probably support this claim that doing it yourself is not always cheaper. And there are any number of reasons why that might be the case that we can maybe touch on later on. But I think one thing we found is if you have the right person for the job, then oftentimes that person may be cheaper than it would be than it would cost for you to do the same project. And that's really, a it's really a matter of expertise and efficiency. But I think the big if there is if you have the right person, because if you outsource to somebody who's just as incapable as you or more incapable than you, but who still expects to be compensated for their time, then it very well may end up costing you more than if you do it yourself or certainly more than if you outsourced it to somebody who's far more competent in whatever manner of task you are right. assigning to them. To that point, 
and I think we, we could discuss the why that you presented. For me, the why is time, because something that I've come to realize more and more the longer that we do this is the value of time in all of these things. And often that's driven by the cost of capital, it's driven by the timing of the market, it's driven by just many other factors that the value it, of your time, the value of your time as well. So, you know, I, I, I think I've, I've even said this on the podcast before we talk about it all the time. If hypothetically someone came to me and said, look, I can do this project for $20,000, but I'll get it done in two weeks. And someone else said, I'll do it for $15,000, but I'll get it done in two months. I would always choose the person that's more expensive to do it in two weeks because I, I mean, maybe there'd be a project where it would make sense to do it longer. But I, I almost can't imagine any of our current projects, it being okay to wait another month and a half for right. something to be done in order to quote unquote, save $5,000. Right. So that applied to this paradigm that we're talking about. If I'm choosing to do it myself and that consumes my time. I can't do something else or I have to delay doing this thing that I want to do. That's real money. That's a real loss. There's also a lot of value in just knowing that something is taken care of. Right. So for us, I think one of the big pieces of the puzzle for me is if I have the right person for a job, I'm almost always going to be willing to pay them a premium to take care of it and to take it off my plate because it then frees me up to do any number of other things that I'm better suited to be focusing on. Yeah, I, I think I think it's mental clarity, context switching. That's a lot of it for me because just going from sitting in front of a computer and responding to emails to drafting a legal document to going to Home Depot to drilling something into a wall to painting, you know, all of that you could back to back it and say, I'm here, 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 here. I'm just popping around, but just mentally to sort of get yourself into the mode to do it. And then if something goes wrong doing those things, right? Like say I go to, to do something in the wall and it was, Oh, I have the wrong screw or I have the wrong this, or I came in the wrong time or that, you know, all of a sudden this 10 and 15 minute task is a two hour task. And if I could have just outsource that to somebody else and be like, look, you figure out all the details. I just want to have the mental clarity to say, is it done? No. Okay. Is it done now? Yes. Great. It's done. This, this right. also goes back to that, that expertise element of it, because if, if I'm doing something like that, there's a much greater likelihood that I'm going to forget the right screw or that I'm not going to have the exact right tool that I'm going to need for this specialized task. And once I have it, it might still only take me 30 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it ends up being. But for the person who is well-equipped to handle that type of task at all times, it's much more likely that they're going to have every every little tool that they would need in their tool belt from the moment they get there. And that will allow them to do it in maybe 15 minutes as opposed to the 45 minutes it would take me. So even if maybe I can do it, maybe I can do it for, or I think I'm only worth $30 an hour and this plumber would charge Oh, come 50. on. You're, you're a $35 an hour guy. Let's be honest. <laughs> so let's say I'm $35 an hour Here guy as John so generously allocated to me. And this plumber is $50 an hour. If it takes me 45 minutes at $35 an hour versus 15 minutes at $50 an hour, I know these may not be the most real world examples for numbers and, and time, but I think the principle holds true. There's a case to be made that it may ultimately be cheaper by having the expert do it as opposed to by trying to do it myself. And then I can go focus on another task that maybe generates a hundred dollars worth of a uh, hundred dollars an hour worth of value with my freed up time. I think that's a great point. I mean, I have a, a even example from today, which is that this morning, one of our renters essentially had damaged part of a, a property, like busted a hole in a wall and 
made all these marks in this wall. And I was kind of in the area. So I was like, well, I'll just stop by and take care of it. And, you know, when I got to Home Depot, I realized all the things that I needed to do to make sure that that was done. I, I needed to get a patch, but I wasn't sure how big the hole was. So I got two different sized patches, you know, wall patches. I needed to get compound essentially to put on the patch and then needed to get a sander to sand the compound once it was done. I needed an applicator, so like a spackle to do that. Then I needed to make sure I could paint the wall and I wasn't sure if the paint was there and I had to get a paint brush also. So, you know, I had to get like seven things just to do this one little task. And by the time I got there, I realized that I had not actually purchased a paintbrush. So I was hoping that there was one there. And then I wasn't sure if there was paint. And you know, I think I texted you even saying like, I can't find the paint. And then it would happen to be like in some crazy area in the basement. But I mean, the whole task probably took, you know, actually sitting in front of the wall and doing it was maybe five minutes at maximum. But all of the effort to, to do that, like I created like a list. I had to like go make sure I got all the stuff in the list and I still forgot something. I mean, that was you know, just a lot of effort. I mean, know? this is like, this is emblematic of kind of the hidden cost of everything. If you think about it in the context of a real estate project, there are hidden costs left and right. You might think your cost basis in a property is the price you pay for the property plus the cost of renovations, but there are all of your financing costs, all of your holding costs, et cetera. Right. It's, it's like that on a micro level with each, every, each and every one of these tasks. It's, there's the setup time, there's the transportation time. And while there are certainly costs in terms of time and presumably money to have somebody else do it or to find the right person to do it or to make the call to set up somebody to go do that, I think more often than not, it pencils out to where that, that is probably worthwhile especially as you do it more and more and you get a, a better and better feel for who is the right fit for what type of project. How do you respond to the one of the points that I, I think I brought up earlier about? So I think we, we just talked about the idea of it being more cost efficient to outsource stuff and sort of disputing that in a lot of cases. What about the argument that by doing it yourself, you can learn how to do it and therefore you know make a more informed decision next time or something like that? I think that's a real valuable point, but I think even that has its context. So let's take two different people. Let's say one is a real estate agent who's just starting out. They really want to get into real estate investment. They're using their position as a real estate agent to kind of learn the ins and outs of the real estate world to make a little bit of money to either cover their overhead or to help save up for a future investment. But they really, really, really aspire towards being a full-time real estate investor at some point down the road. Let's say the second person's a 15-year veteran who runs their own real estate team, is a very successful agent in their own right, and who just like has their formula down and just churns out deals left and right. They are closing multiple deals a month. They make a lot of money doing it. And they have a, you know, they have their team set up as a business and and that's where their highest and best use is. For person B, the experienced real estate agent, I think it would be nuts for that person to say, okay, I'm going to go over to this rental property that I happened in, like that, that I just ended up owning by happenstance. Maybe it was a house that I owned myself that I decided I wanted to just keep as a rental. It'd be insane for that person to say, I'm going to go spend two hours out of my day to try to replace this cartridge in the shower valve or to do little sheetrock repair on the staircase that, or along the staircase that John alluded to earlier, that's just not a good use of their time. And it's probably not aligned with what their long-term mission is in real estate. Mm -hmm. And I think for that person, that person also has the means, but the experience of it 
doesn't mean nearly as much as it would for the person who is maybe helping someone out with another real estate investment or who go back to person A. So let's say person A, who's a new real estate agent, just kind of getting their feet wet, wet, but who really aspires towards being a full-time investor down the road, that person should be doing every single thing in their power to get as much hands-on real-world knowledge of what it's like to be an owner of real estate, a manager of real estate, to purchase real estate, to renovate real estate. So I think that that type of task holds a lot more value to person A than to person B. I think that that's a good way of looking at it. I, I, I think about that a lot in the context of my own life, honestly. So I was going around um, with someone yesterday. We were looking at different properties of ours and talking about the process. And it's weird because I think, as I, I said uh, earlier in this episode, that oftentimes when I tell people the, the scope of things that I have done personally or that I can do personally, I think that the impression of people is to be impressed. They're like, oh, wow, you can whatever. Like you have all, you're, you're handy. You can do this, you can do that, you can do whatever. I do find that to be a useful skill in some contexts, but I, I don't know how useful a skill that is in a sort of professional context for, for what I'm doing. Right? Like, I guess what I mean is that it's nice to sort of, like it's nice if I go into a house and I see something a little bit broken, I can fix it very quickly. That's a nice skill to have. But in terms of what we're trying to do real estate wise, like those skills are not often required or called upon. I don't know if you think differently, but. I think having the collective knowledge is beneficial in a lot of ways. And I think even if it's, even if it's subconscious or even if it's, even if it just takes the form of going into a house that looks like it's in a state of total disrepair, but once you can look at it with a little bit more of a keen eye, you realize that it's really just like one or two glaring things that aren't that daunting to repair. And then a collection, like an assortment of little things that need to be done. I think it, it, it helps to be able to evaluate a prospective deal because I think you can more accurately put together a true scope of work and a true budget. But I think day to day, I actually think it's almost harmful because it, it creates so many opportunities for us to lose sight of what it is that we should be doing because well, yeah. there are all these like things that come up that we can Maybe do. I can, I can put it this way. Like I think some, sometimes some of the skills that I've acquired have positioned me very well to be a nice handyman. Right. <laughs> well, I don't really know that that's a, a handyman with three I mean, Ivy league degrees yeah, and a law degree. I don't know if that's a, an aspiration of my life. So I think it's, it's helpful, but um, it can be just, you know, for, for me, I think one reason, you know, back to the initial topic of should I do it myself or should I get somebody else to do it? One reason why I often like doing things myself is because I feel like it's very easy to say I accomplished something and I did it because oftentimes some of the tasks are so simple, right? I, I was actually at um, one of our properties yesterday and I noticed that one of the, um, the, the pulls for a drawer was loose. And um, it just kind of annoyed me. And I don't think that the person there, the, this cleaner there, I don't think that she would have like known about it or like really, you know, said anything about it. So I just went into my car, pulled out a drill and then made it not loose anymore. So it looked normal. And I feel like somebody would have noticed that and that kind of even subconsciously would have been like, oh, make, you know, place doesn't look that nice because there's this thing is loose. And I felt good about it. I was like, I accomplished this. I did it, right? And um, I think you can string, that's a lot, it's a lot easier to say I accomplished that to say, 
yeah, I did all of the legal work to finally close this multi-million dollar private equity fund I'm raising. That's an accomplishment, but that's an accomplishment that's not going to happen for months and months and months. Whereas saying I drilled a screw into something is a two second task is like immediate, about that. Immediate, gratification. immediate gratification, right? So it's these like very simple tasks, like fixing this hole in the wall, like I fixed it. It looks better. It's not a hole in the wall anymore, right? It's easy to string those things together because you can kind of, it's like avoiding the hard stuff by just doing the easy stuff. And just for me, it's like, well, good thing that I, I just so happen to be able to do it. Whereas, you know, other people can't do it. So great. I've done it. I don't know if that, I don't know if you have the same thought around that, but I think that's one of the reasons why I'm drawn to doing things myself a lot. I guess I, I draw a similar conclusion, but maybe for like slightly different reasons. I think part of it is, Part of it is that those types of tasks tend to be very re reactive. And when there are things like that that come up, they seem like they're super urgent, even though they're not necessarily important. So I think because we have the ability to do that, it just, it, it, it can create, it creates a distraction that seemingly never ends. And I, I mean, there, there are days when I want to just make the, just like point blank rule out doing certain types of tasks. Like, frankly, I think in almost every situation, we might be better off if John just refused to go somewhere to repair a piece of sheetrock or to go somewhere to screw in a screw in a handle on a loose cabinet door. Not to say that those things don't need to be done, but John probably doesn't need to be the person to do them. I agree on a very um, real level, but I think implementing that into practice is very hard. Right. Well, so I guess the next space that I think we should take the conversation is... I think we're in agreement on the fact that outsourcing, while it may not always be the best route, there is certainly a place for it and certainly a place for it in, in our business. So if you're going to outsource things, how do you do it most effectively? Yeah. And I think we've, we've also done this wrong too, right. to give a sense of what we've done. We've, we've had people that have been working for us full time in the construction context, in the management context, that weren't really doing full-time jobs, I would say. And we had thought that the, the ease of having these people kind of on call at any time, um, I guess we would either find ways to use their time or we'd just benefit from the luxury of just having them around. But we ultimately had to lay off a couple of people over the course of us doing this because for one reason, I just don't think there was enough having a full-time employee and saying, Hey, I'm going to outsource stuff to you to, to take care of it is probably not very frequently the best solution. I guess you think about the word outsourcing, the way that I think about it in this context is just taking something that is on your plate and putting it on somebody else's plate. That could be somebody else who is an employee of the same company. That can be somebody who works for you personally, or that could be a third party, per, a third party individual or company who is essentially subcontracted out for that specific task. And so I think where we went wrong was having a lot of these things that we were quote unquote outsourcing, but we were outsourcing it to somebody else internally. And when things went awry, what either things weren't done as we wanted them to be done or things cost more or whatever the case may be, if it didn't go according to plan, even though it was outsourced, the buck still stopped with us and we were still financially res responsible for that mistake. Whereas I think in the context of, of subcontracting workout, there's a little bit cleaner uh, of a division of responsibility there. So if, if you hire somebody to sheetrock one wall and it is like very clearly spelled out in some sort of agreement, 
if they don't sheetrock that wall, then that's on them. Either they're not getting paid or they're not, or they're going to come back and they're going to make sure it's done right. So I think, I think going forward, that's something to learn from in a lot of different, different respects. I think the criteria or the way that you should approach outsourcing is first and foremost to figure out why it is that you're outsourcing. If you just have like a constant stream of like repetitive tasks, then yeah, maybe it makes sense to have somebody in-house to handle that one area of your business. But if it's a lot of different things, I think it's it's more a matter of finding the right people for that job, figuring out what the rate should be to do that type of work, and then establishing a consistent working relationship with that person where you know what is expected, it is carefully communicated, and it should be codified in some sort of agreement, whether it's a subcontractor agreement or an architectural plan that is referenced by you and that person that everyone is in agreement on. I think these are all things that we've tried to do in the past. And in some contexts, we do them well. In other contexts, we don't do them well. I'm just, I guess, John, I'm just curious on your yeah. thoughts. Do you agree with that? How do you think that the art of sub subcontracting and outsourcing things should should unfold? I think that the easiest way for me to look at it is one of your first points, which is to say, where should the the buck lie, essentially, who takes ultimate responsibility for doing something? And something that we've done wrong, and I think we should do better in the future is accurately ascribing that type of thing, sort of like accurately ascribing risks and monetary consequences. So one example, I think you might be alluding to to this is that we, you know we've been doing some some flips recently and on these flips we are the owners we're also the general contractors and in some cases we're in a way the subcontractors doing the work of subcontractors at various times in some of the things that we do and we had few other subcontractors we had maybe an electrician and a plumber and like an HVAC person or something like that but because we were the the, the general contractor and the owner, and at least in one case, we don't have to get into it because I think it would probably cause me to vomit. But in one case, you know, we also had uh, a kind of strange agreement with an investor. The only person ever responsible for anything that went wrong was us. There's no other person. So if something was wrong with the construction process, that was us. If something was wrong with the sales process, that was us. If something was wrong with the landscaping, that was us. If there's a violation in the property because we didn't take out the trash, that was our fault. If there, you know, whatever. And that became very, very untenable, stressful and financially bad because we just couldn't point the finger at anybody. I mean, we managed at one point to sort of ascribe blame to one other person in the process. And I think we didn't have any sort of like legal or contractual way to do that. It was essentially just one of the subcontractors doing us a favor to fix something that had been messed up. But if not for that person, we would have been financially on the hook for a lot of money to fix something that wasn't really our fault. And that way of structuring stuff was, I think, that the opposite of how I'd like to structure it, right? Like, like let's just take, let's drill down into a, into a specific construction project where you have the owner, general contractor, you have subcontractors, whatever. What if the subcontractor's employee makes a mistake? Who's, who should be responsible for that? Well, I would say probably the subcontractor. If that employee's mistake then causes another subcontractor to have to pay more money or the general contractor to have to pay more money or the owner to have to pay more money, whoever that is or whatever way that that money flows should be done in a way that's equitable to everybody involved. And 
what we had structured these things were that if some, if our plumber's employee messes up and as a result, we have to rip open some sheetrock, fix something and then redo the sheetrock, that's all on us. You know, we don't really have any, any recourse to the plumber's employee that will fix the thing underneath the sheetrock, but everything else we have to do. And that's really a burden on us to say, you know, we, that, that's, that's an example of an inequitable, unfair arrangement of how we subcontracted something, of how we got someone else to do it. As well as the initial point about hiring somebody full-time to, to sort of do that task, that also doesn't make sense. In one regard, someone might, like an outsider might look and say, well, these are your guys who are going to be fixing it anyway. So why is it, you know, why is that, aren't you in a better position to do that than somebody who is maybe just the owner of the house and has to pay someone to go make those repairs? Well, no, because that person who is our full-time employee is paid is paid every day. And the only way that we generate enough income to pay that person is by deploying them on different projects. So we're just, we're essentially double paying for work that had already right. been done. A counter example is, is something that we did uh, when we had a, we did a third party job, a construction job recently for someone that we just finished. And we very specifically wrote in a, in a construction agreement with this person, the owner of the house, what our scope of responsibilities were for. And you know, we talked about these responsibilities in great detail. We ascribed prices to them and everything else. And when things went wrong that weren't in those responsibilities, that weren't our fault, like uh, things that we discovered or things that the city wanted or things that maybe the owner or the, the buyer is a flip so that you know, the, the buyer wanted, it was very easy for us to say, look, that's not our responsibility and we'll take care of it but we need to charge you for taking care of it. For me, we also had subcontractors too that we very specifically said, do this thing, do this thing, do this thing. And obviously it's not their scope. We can do whatever. But you know, that having that arrangement in the construction context, I think is is great. But uh, the way to do it, I think you can you can generalize that to say, you know, in the property management context, in the the broker context, in the legal context, say, look, this is in, you know, we, we had this another experience with a, with a broker where uh, uh, I think a lot of things that were supposed to be in this person's court ended up being in our court. And that was another example of how we didn't appropriately say, this is in your court. And maybe it was because we chose the wrong person. I think it probably was because you chose the wrong person, but you know, it could have also been because we didn't we didn't really lay the ground rules appropriately. But it's not as easy. I mean, it it can get very complicated when you say, I don't want to do this task, somebody else do it. It's not as easy just saying do it. You also have to think about how if something goes wrong, who's at fault for that? And how is that how is that fault going to be correctly apportioned or, or blamed? And you know, if, if it's an, if it's your employee, that's different than if it's your subcontract. That's different than if it's your general contract. That's different than if it's your property manager, your attorney, your broker, whatever else. I think a lot of this can fundamentally be solved by more effective communication, though. I think the in the context of or in the situation with a lot of different subcontractors, when there is some kind of dispute or disagreement on this, I think it generally stems from the fact that the expectations weren't perfectly clear from the beginning. So maybe maybe there was a scope of work in place, but it wasn't discussed who would take responsibility if you were doing some type of repair in room A and room B was to be left alone, but then it was determined that something in room B needed to be addressed. So the homeowner thinks, oh, well, I hired you to do this whole project. 
why were you not doing this or why didn't you identify this from the very beginning? Right. We had already arrived at the scope and this this was this was my budget. I, I can't do anything else. But from the contractor side of things, it's easy to say, hey, look, you hired me to do this explicit scope that is outlined in this agreement. If I'm going to do additional work, I need to be compensated for that. So I think if that kind of stuff is discussed, oftentimes it is it is included in a contractor's agreement somewhere. And there's usually some kind of like CYA language that gives them the right to charge you back, which I would argue is reasonable so long as it's not exploited. I do think that there, the onus is on both parties to have that conversation ahead of time so that in the event of some sort of surprise, it's less of a surprise um, when somebody has to bear the brunt of the financial burden. I agree with communication. Like we've seen it where... We thought we communicated very well, and we've been we've been wrong. And I'm thinking about a uh, project where we had where we had a an electrician that uh, <laughs> allegedly wrote, or not Boy. allegedly, actually wrote in their contract with us they were going to provide 200 amp service to our house. And then uh, we realized when it came time for rough inspections that they'd only uh, anticipated there'd be 100 amp service. And we called them out. They said, "Oh, it was a mistake." <laughs> which is uh, an amazing, which is, <laughs> which is also not the first time we've heard that from from a subcontractor. Right. For something that was explicitly written on an invoice right. or an for something explicitly communicated, <laughs> agreed upon, they said, "Oh, it's just a just a mistake." It's like, oh, okay, well, it, it, <laughs> it's hard to respond to that because it's so, so inane and so crazy. Going forward, how do you think you avoid these types of mishaps? I mean, there are always going to be surprises. There are always going to be mishaps, and there's go, there's always going to be you're always going to run into to bad eggs who are just unwilling to stand by the quality of their work or who are trying to right. pull a fast one on you. I think it's a, it's a great question. I, I don't know if there's an easy answer to it because I think we're still trying to figure it out, but there's probably a, a bunch of components to it. I think in the construction context, one solution is just to say bad things will happen. So let's budget for it. Let's right. make sure that we have more money ascribed to the project just to make sure that we, if, if we are in a bad situation holding the bag, let's make sure that we have enough money to, to surround it. You know, I think the second thing is your point about communication, be upfront about the scope directly and even if that's uncomfortable or even if that's weird you know make sure that everyone's on the same page having plans is a great mm -hmm. is a great solution because you can always refer to the plans and say we're going to do things as the plans say and if the plans say something and they don't do it well we're doing it you know that's your fault because we did it with the plans right another lesson i think is just to cut losses when it becomes yes. obvious to do so i think we yeah. we let things drag on with people who probably shouldn't have been involved with the project or with the business in in some capacity for longer than they should have right that's a great point yeah when when things are going wrong i think they're not going to self correct right and and time is truly money so the faster you can say i'm done i'm moving on the more money you'll save and the, the faster you come to the solution it's an evolving process part of that is also just learning what it is that we are doing. Like with every project, we learn more and more. And as much as we may learn from these projects and figure things out that we're going to be able to redeploy on future similar projects, we're always going to be gr growing and evolving and doing larger projects, which are going to come with different concerns. Right. It's part of our maturation too, as I mean, this is, we talked about in the previous episode, the difference between working on your business and working in your business, trying to learn how to balance those objectives. I think this is a big component of that, trying to learn how to balance work that you subcontract offload to other people. I think any real estate investor, any even small business owner, entrepreneur that goes down this path will have these types of problems and these types of questions. And some people never solve them. I mean, I see people that are like in their 70s and 80s that are owning real estate that are there every night plunging a toilet and, and doing stuff like that. So 
I think at the end of a lot of episodes, we tend to say this, but just thinking about the, the problem is, is kind of half the battle, just recognizing this is an issue. Uh, which, it's amazing which, how many how many answers, how many questions can be answered with just a little bit of thought. It is amazing. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a miracle of the human mind, it really is. But to that point though, I think that there's also the case, like there are some people who get into this business who have a much different end game than, than what right. we have. And so for us, outsourcing a little bit more aggressively makes sense because we have, or we perceive that we have a higher and better use of our time. But there, there are plenty of people who I think have in their mind that they want to, they want to reach a portfolio of five or 10 properties that they can self-manage and between the the management income and the actual cash flow from the investment itself that funds the life that they want to live. And for them, maybe saving an extra 50 bucks every time somebody calls is makes it worthwhile to do something yourself because it yeah. it frees you of the burden of knowing you have to manage other people or communicate with other people or rely on other people. Sure. And yeah, that's that's how some people choose to live that way. One example that comes to mind of our outsourcing is this podcast. We don't we don't edit the podcast ourselves. We outsource it to somebody else. That is very else. true. And I've outsourced my consciousness to someone else as well. So it's actually not me speaking. It's just kind of a, <laughs> an ephemeral uh, uh, sound vestige of myself. Yeah, it's, it's just a, it's a John it's very, very clever. The editor is great. Thank you so much. It's very, very clever sound bites edited together to create coherent thoughts. Unbelievable. Shout out to Alex, who is the, our editor. Thank you, Alex. Um, I, I guess real quick, let's talk about other contexts. I know we just mentioned the podcast, but in the real estate business itself, there are agents or there are investors who are also agents who really like to list their projects. There are attorneys who represent themselves and buy their own real estate. There are property managers who buy properties to self-manage. What are your thoughts on on that and how these, um, I guess these same points that we're talking about between the contractor investor dynamic play out with investor and property manager or investor and agent or investor and attorney? I think it's important to realize what the role these people are supposed to play in a transaction is. Oftentimes, the reason why people hire an attorney for almost anything is because they want to have that buffer of separation between them and somebody else. So for example, even with outside the real estate context, if you're negotiating a contract between two different parties, you and the other party might be friends or you might have an existing relationship, but you might want things that the other party doesn't. And so you'll hire an intermediary essentially to advocate for your position and then counter their own intermediary so that the intermediaries, in this case, attorneys can like battle it out. Well, you can save face and say, oh, it's just my attorney, you know, doing that. that. That's a real reason why people hire attorneys to do things. And in the real estate context, that's in my mind, oftentimes the same rationale. So, you know, if if Ryan is the seller and there's somebody else who's the buyer, they might have differing opinions or different beliefs or different goals about what they want to do. It's nice for them to say to the agents, the real estate agents or the attorneys, like you guys figure out the details so I can be away from the fray. That's a very appropriate use of time. And so you have to realize if you're intentionally intermingling that where you're both the agent and the owner or the buyer, the agent and the lawyer or whatever else, you lose that that separation and you have a tendency to become very involved in it. I mean, we were just joking. We have a transaction where I'm both an owner of it and also the attorney of it. And I play the card all the time of saying, I have to consult with my client, who is essentially me. And I play the card of, I have to consult with my attorney, who is John. Right, who often is like sitting two feet away from you (laughs) or whatever. So it's, um, it's an important 
card to be able to play. I, I couldn't play that card if it was very obvious that I was the seller. I, I think, for example, if I was selling a piece of property myself, I would hire an attorney. If I'm selling it as an LLC where I can sort of say, oh, there are other people, you know, whatever, I'm more comfortable representing that because I can, I can use that distance to say, yeah, I'm the attorney for the LLC. I got to consult with other people, figure it out. So if you're like the, the broker, for example, and it's very obvious that you're, you're representing, you know, yourself as your own agent or broker, you lose that, that, that separation, notwithstanding the skill sets and the time or whatever else. But, um, but yeah. that's a super important point to me in this process. The point you brought up, which is the distinction between party A and party B, I think is critical. I think that's, that makes hiring somebody else to be on your side in any of these contexts super valuable. But I think that there's also the, the value card of what that other person is bringing to the table. So the value that your attorney brings to the table shouldn't just be that they are not you. If somebody is your real estate attorney representing you in a transaction, they should be adding as much value to the table as, or the value that they bring to the table should exceed what you are paying them for. Same is true for a property manager. Same is true for an agent. If you're being a real estate agent, or if you're bringing a real estate agent onto your flip to sell your project from you so that you as a seller are not the one who's at the house for the open houses, then that person should also be doing a better job of selling the house for you than you would. If whether that means they're, you know, an expert at staging or whether that means they are just excellent at follow-up and they know they're gonna stay on top of every buyer who comes through the door, or they are in with every agent who is active in that market. There are things that like they should be good at what they are doing, notwithstanding the fact that they are just going to take something off of your plate. And I think that's critical for for anyone who you're hiring. And I think that's a mistake that we've made in the past where we haven't been as selective about some of these things as we should have been. You know, even if you think about it, some people say, you know, why would I ever hire a real estate agent to sell my own house? Because I live there and I'll just nobody knows sell the house it. better than nobody I do. Nobody knows the house better than I do. And I'm gonna have to pay, you know, six percent, whatever it is, five percent, six percent to this agent to, you know, put on the MLS or whatever. And the easy response to that is to say, well, look, I mean, probably maybe the agent can get you more money than, you know, you're going to save by doing it yourself. But the other flip side of it is that they're actually going to be able to sell your house probably much more quickly than you would be able to otherwise. Like you can put up your for sale by owner sign and put it on Zillow or whatever else, but it might take you five, six months to sell the house. And yeah, maybe you'll save whatever, 30 grand, 20 grand that you're going to pay in commission. But if you consider the fact that you had to wait six months and your kind of carrying costs and the fact you're delaying your life and whatever else, because you refuse to hire an agent to save the money, did you really actually save any money? I mean, and, probably and, not. And I mean, fundamentally, I think the question is, if you sold your house for $300,000 and an agent would have cost you 5%, would that agent have sold that house for 5% more? Because if the answer is yes, then they've paid for themselves. If the answer is that they would have sold it for 4% more than what you paid, then you're maybe paying a 1% premium for the added convenience of not having to show everyone the house, for not having to hold open houses, for not having to coordinate with the attorneys, with the appraisers, with, with everyone else involved in the transaction. At the end of the day, everyone who's in these businesses is there for a reason. They're there to provide some sort of value. And if you find the right person for each of these jobs, then paying them should not really be a concern. It's a cost of doing business. If you are concerned about paying them, then maybe you're not, maybe you're not working with the right person. I think that's a great point and, and maybe a great point to, to sort of sum up the, the conversation. I think we, we've, we've covered a lot of topic, uh, a, lot of, a lot of things today. 
my advice or my my observations from doing this for a long time are, you know, I, I'm still torn on, on a daily basis, I think, between small tasks, trying to do them myself and trying to figure out if there's someone else to do it. I think Ryan has has put up a lot of good arguments as to to why frequently it isn't the case, but it's still hard for me personally, both on a micro level, and I think it's hard on a, a macro level, like a very big picture level, to figure out the best way to structure stuff. We're still learning, we're still trying to figure that out. But just just knowing that it's a, a problem that is should be solved and that we're working to solve, I think we will we will get there. You know, we'll we'll figure out a solution to it. One additional thought on the topic of experience and learning from all this stuff is there's actually something that I've found, which is kind of, it kind of runs counter to the point that I think both of us made earlier. What we had said earlier was that oftentimes just by throwing yourself into the fire and by doing something, you'll learn a lot. And while I think that definitely holds true, if you hire the right person, if you hire somebody who is an expert at what they do, you're also going to learn a lot from them, especially if you take every opportunity to do so. If you're hiring a plumber or an electrician and you're just kind of like shadowing them as they're as they're doing their work or you're talking through the scope with them when they're first coming to look at a project, ask questions and and learn from that experience. Think about how they think about what they're looking at. So if it comes to when it comes to pricing, for example, if your plumber comes in and look at looks at a job to redo all of the plumbing in the house and just comes to you and just as a blanket statement says it's going to be $20,000, ask him why it's going to be $20,000. He might say like his answer might be, well, we're generally between 800 and $1,000 per fixture. And the discrepancy tends to be based on how far of a run you have from the stacks to each fixture or based on the degree of access in the basement or based on the fact that a lot of the plumbing has to be buried in the basement floor. If you get an answer like that, that's going to stick with you and that's going to make you a lot better at estimating what your costs are going to be on your next project when you're when you're trying to think about what, what to assign to your plumbing budget. So use every opportunity where you're dealing with an expert to learn something from it. You might be paying for it, but you might be getting just as much back in the way of knowledge. I think it's a great point. Thank you, Ryan. It's thank been you, a great John. episode. And thank you guys for listening. We will see you on the next episode. Take care. See ya.